So, uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going through verse uh, 7 through 13 today, and then we're going to take a pause next week at Easter and just tell the greatest story that has ever been told, which is that the tomb was, was empty, and I get out of my mind excited on Easter. It's my favorite day of the year. So if you see me running around screaming, he is risen at you next week, um, just scream, he is risen indeed, and we'll, we'll move on. So, um, so this book of Ephesians is an absolute delight. The first three chapters really are doctrinal in nature. So Paul is, like he does in a lot of letters, the first part is going to be teaching us something. And then the last three chapters, four, five, and six, he's going to be teaching us to apply what he's taught us, okay? So if you have not heard these or they're all uh, on the website, you can go uh, find them on Apple Podcasts and find uh, those sermons and go back and listen to them. I encourage you to do that or study Ephesians on your own. But we've moved through the first three chapters and now we've walked into the, the, into the fourth looking at what it means to apply some of these teachings that, that Paul has given us. And uh, Treb was preaching the last two weeks on verses 1 through 6, and we're just going to barely touch on that in a second. But before we do that, let's read 7 through 13 and then dive into this text. So here we go. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So when Paul says, but to each one of us, who are the ones that he's talking about? Whenever you read something in the Bible and you have that question, you just go up a couple verses, usually the beginning of the chapter or the beginning of the preceding paragraph and try to see if you can figure it out. So the preceding paragraph, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I then urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble, patient, bearing with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit. You were called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So who is the, but each one of us? Well, it's, it's those who have one hope. It's those who are part of the one body. It's those who have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the book, it is to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the message to believers. So if you are a believer... The message that Paul has is to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. it uh, you have, may have a different version that says uh, something more like uh, um, he's measured out or he's been uh, grace uh, according to the measure of the gift. It's a little wonky, but the, the NIV here translates it. Grace has been given us as Christ apportioned it. So I was looking at this idea of grace, which of course is all over this book. And there's a book, which I would encourage you to read. But it's a deep, 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 deep dive. It's by Lewis Sperry Schaefer. The title of the book is just simply Grace. And in it, he is discussing what it is that grace actually is. So in a book titled Grace, you're going to hope he gives a good definition of it. And the quick definition of grace is unmerited favor, right? That God is not only, uh, not just mercy. It's not like we didn't just get what we deserve, but he's poured his own favor upon us when we didn't earn it or don't deserve it. But here's this wonderful quote about grace. It says, It may be concluded that the word grace, as used in the Bible, 
in related to divine salvation represents the uncompromised, unrestricted, unrecompensed, loving favor of God towards sinners. Isn't that great? Uncompromised, unrestricted, unrecompensed, loving favor of God towards sinners. It is an unearned blessing. It is a gratuity. God is absolutely untrammeled and unshackled in expressing his infinite love by his infinite grace. So hold on. These are big words. Through the death of his lamb, at first, how does he express it? One, through the death of his lamb, by whom every limitation which human sin could impose has been dispelled. Two, through the provision which offers salvation as a gift, by which human obligation has forever been dismissed. And through the divine creed, by which human merit has been forever deposed. Human merit meaning whatever we can throw toward God to make us seem worthy. Grace is the limitless, unrestrained love of God for the lost acting in full compliance with the exact and unchangeable demands of his own righteousness through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Grace is more than love. It is love set absolutely free and made to be a triumphant victor over the righteous judgment of God against the sinner. The whole book is like that. Wow, right? Grace is more than love. It is love set absolutely free and made to be a triumphant victor over the righteous judgment of God against the sinner. For God so loved the world does nothing for us unless God does something for us, right? It doesn't matter if he says he loves us. He shows us that he loves us by giving us his son. So Romans talks about it. If you ever need to be reminded that God loves you, you always look to the cross. So when it says, but each one of us To each one of us, to every believer, grace has been given. But not just given, but given as Christ apportioned it or or met it out. The the word there is is metros, this uh, mechanism for measuring something. Christ has measured it out. How does he measure grace? Well, he gives you exactly what you need. How much grace do you need? That is what God gives you. How much grace does Christ give you? Exactly what he measured out. For you. Is it limitless? Of course it is, because it's his. He only gives in full measure. But when it says he's measured it out, it's this wonderful picture of intentionality. He's not just like blasting grace everywhere in this capricious way. Like everything that God does, it is planned, it is measured, it is exact, it is perfect. So to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And he's going to talk about gifts here in just a second. We're going to explain uh, why. In verse 8 there, he's quoting from Psalm 68. And as uh, New Testament writers often do, they'll just take a little snippet out of a huge whole thing because Paul almost assuredly had Psalm 68 and probably all of the Psalms memorized. So as he's writing this inspired by the Spirit, he brings this to mind. And so I'm going to jump back into Psalm 68. You're welcome to come with me, but I'm going to jump around a wee bit. But you can make a note in your Bible that this phrase right here, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What is that all about? What's the context of it? What is Paul talking about? So Psalm 68 starts like this. He says, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. Happy Easter. (laughs) The reality, right, is that when you talk about sin and evil, that's what I want. I don't want sin and evil to be just to have free reign. 
There is a sovereign king, and that is what this psalm is about. He says, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord Yahweh. Rejoice before him. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. He is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. This is who God is. And he continues in verse 18. This is the verse that, quote, that Paul quotes. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. It's this picture of a king who has taken up taken a, a, a high fortress, in this case Jerusalem, and he's taken it, and he's now receiving gifts from the people that he's conquered. But he says, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, if you remember I studied the names of God, this is, O you, Yahweh, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord Adonai, to God our Savior. You, O Yahweh Elohim, dwell there. So David is writing this psalm to Yahweh, to the one true God, about who he is and what he has done. He is like a conquering king who has taken up his residence and is now receiving gifts from those he's conquered. So what is Jesus doing here? When Paul quotes this, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. You may notice there's a switch there. It doesn't say that men gave gifts to him. It says that he gave gifts to men. And the best way that I can explain that is that Paul is writing this, and he's quoting that and using it for this purpose. And you might ask, well, how can he be quoting it if it's the same? Well, let me ask you the question, which is, who wrote Psalms? The Holy Spirit wrote Psalms. He did it through David, that Psalm. Who wrote Ephesians? The Holy Spirit wrote Ephesians, and he did it through Paul. He inspired him to do that. So I figure he can kind of quote himself like he wants to. So when he said, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. This is a picture of a victorious King Jesus. But he is not taking gifts from the people. He's now giving gifts to those that he is now ruling over. What are those gifts? We're going to get to those in just a second, because on verse 9, you'll see your Bible may even have a parenthesis in verses 9 and 10. So Paul does this often. He'll be talking one thing, and then he'll take this little parenthetical pause. And you're like, what are you talking about? Where'd you go? And then, okay, well, now we're back to what you were talking about. So he's discussing this, these gifts that have been given us, this grace, and how Christ is like an ascended king. And then he says, okay, well, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So just take this picture broadly of, you ask, what does this mean? You ask, well, what is this? Jesus could do up, up and down? Where's he going? Well, he ascended. Where did Jesus come from? Came from heaven, right? The incarnation is God incarnating on planet earth as the one God-man, God in flesh. He descended to where? To the lower earthly regions where you and I are, and even into the lower, lower earthly regions in a tomb in the ground. And he who descended is the very one who ascended. He did not stay in the tomb. He rose from the tomb, and then he appeared to all these people, and then he ascended into heaven. You see, it says, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul is connecting Christ with the same person he's talking about in Psalm 68. Do you see that? In Psalm 68, he says, even from the rebellious that you, O Yahweh Elohim, might dwell there. Praise be 
to the Lord Adonai, the God, our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Paul is saying that that is Jesus. Do you see the explosive revelation of that for a Jew? Paul is declaring over and over and over again through this whole book and through all of his writings that Christ is the same God in the Old Testament. It's the same God. That is the beautiful mystery of the Trinity that is woven all through the New Testament and the Old that we serve and worship one God in three persons and that Christ is the second member of the Godhead. What does he ascended mean? He came from heaven, descended to the lower earthly regions, who ascended as the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to what? Fill the whole universe. If you flip back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse oh, 19, 20, 19. Oh, it's so hard to just, he's in the middle of, Paul writes his longest sentences ever. Okay. Um, let's just start at 22. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Christ, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who does what? Fills everything in every way. So when Paul says that he ascended into heaven in order to fill the whole universe, Christ is not limited. He fills everything in every way. He fulfills every promise. You could, a, We already preached a sermon on that, but the idea is that this is the same Christ who was talked about in chapter 1, who has been made head of the body, and now he's going on describing what this unity in this body looks like and how we actually go about living it out. Okay. Stay with me? Okay. So, 7 through 10, this, he, Paul has set, it, he set up this connection with Christ as the same God of, of Psalm 68, reminding us that it was, he was the very same Christ who came down that we've talked about, who died on the cross, went in a tomb, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. It's the same Jesus, the very one. Why is that important? It's easy to look at, and by the way, lots and lots of cults and lots and lots of uh, different uh, splinter groups in the early church did this, explained one thing or another away about Jesus. Well, he wasn't fully divine, or he wasn't fully human, or he didn't really die, or he just really, he just kind of fainted on the cross before they stabbed him in the heart with a spear, and he laid in the tomb for three days, brutally beaten and stabbed. You know, all these things that he, all these concepts of anything to explain away that Christ is really who he says he is. That I'm the son of God, I came to die on the cross for your sins, and I rose from the dead conquering sin and death. Anything to explain that away is better than dealing with the reality of that. Why? Because if that is who he is, then I must kneel before him. There is no other option. And Paul is giving us no out. That is the same Jesus, the same Jesus that he's talking about. And so in verse 11, it says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, to be prophets, to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So if we look back at uh, Ephesians 2.20, this is after this beautiful chapter of that we were dead in our sins and uh, transgressions and sins made us alive together by grace. You have been saved through faith. All of that, just amazing. He says in verse 19, 219, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. You're not separate, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So you see the the imagery he's using is that like the temple had a giant cornerstone. When we were in Jerusalem, we saw these, these foundation stones were like incomprehensibly massive. Incomprehensibly massive. Perfect. 
They're like 60 feet long. They weigh, I don't even know how much. It's unbelievable. You have to dig, dig down and walk by these tunnels and see these foundation stones that are still there. These cornerstones that hold up this unbelievable weight of a huge stone building. That Christ is this cornerstone, and then upon him are the apostles and the prophets. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So he's referencing back to this as the apostles and the prophets that are built on the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone. And I say this because these are all, these are, this is a partial list of spiritual gifts that have been given to the church. They're not only gifts that have been given, but they're also offices or roles that people have within the body. If you want to do a, a deeper dive on spiritual gifts, I encourage you to dive into Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 and look at uh, other more expanded lists of some of the spiritual gifts that are, are present in the New Testament. But he is talking about these, I'm going to say four, because the pastors and teachers is really almost up like a hyphenated word. You don't really separate those things. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. So an apostle is someone who is, uh, it's like a delegate, someone who's sent with orders. It's a sent one. And so they were, in the most narrow sense, an apostle is, they are the, uh, the 12 plus Paul. So you got the 12 disciples, apostles, like James and John and Andrew and those guys, and Peter. You've got these 12 people who walked with Jesus, who saw him face to face, who knew him, and then Paul, who also saw Jesus face to face. He had, a, uh, he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And those sort of 13 are the, the apostles that we think of when you think about the most narrow concept of the word apostle. The word is also, though, used for, for Barnabas and for Titus and for Silas. And, and uh, in Romans chapter 16, um, there's a couple dudes in there who are, you probably don't even know whose names they are. So they're also given the, kind of the title or the, the office of apostle. So most narrowly, it means those original 12 plus Paul. A little more broadly, it means those who were in direct uh, line with those guys and upon which the foundation of the church is built, okay? Um, those apostles, those are the guys who wrote the New Testament that we have. John, Matthew, Peter, Paul, James. These are, these are the people that wrote the books that we now get all of our doctrine from. So that rolls us into uh, um, prophets. So once again, broadly speaking, a prophet is like, is like an organ of inspiration. So if you think, go back to the Old Testament, or uh, you think Elijah is a prophet, and Elijah and, 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 and Isaiah and all these guys, they would come, Ezekiel would say, thus says the Lord. So God would tell this prophet something, or he would tell Moses something, and Moses as a prophet would be the mouthpiece, mouthpiece for God. God would talk to him, he would talk to the people, the people would talk back to the prophet, he would talk back to God. He's this, inter, this intermediary. And they would tell the future, and if they didn't, if it says something was going to happen, it didn't happen, you could stone them. Turn back there, it's in Deuteronomy 18. So, you wouldn't want to just like capriciously say, oh, God's, the Lord, thus says the Lord that in 30 days there's going to be a, a famine that's going to last for three years, and if it doesn't, it rains in two weeks, they could stone you. Sure, it's generally no fun. So, as this uh, mouthpiece or um, um, organ of inspiration, that was the prophetic office, certainly in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you see something that's slightly different, where you have um, prophets who are doing some different things. Like you've got a guy named Agabus in Acts chapter 11. He comes up and he co comes out of nowhere and he prophesies that it's not going to rain for a while and so they need to prepare for things. Okay, God tells Agabus something. Agabus tells all the church leaders, boom, let's do some stuff. I'm not going to get into the weeds of whether there are apostles or prophets today or whatever. You can go, if somebody says I'm an apostle somewhere, just 
They probably drive a really nice car and have maybe a gold ring. Just ignore them and move on. So uh, when we lived in Guatemala, all these guys wanted to be apostles. And then if you couldn't be an apostle, you wanted to be a prophet. Why? Because people would give you money. A prophet makes a good prophet. So that's not the prophets in the Bible. They got sawn in half, or they were thrown into the lion's den, or they got crucified upside down. Okay, so, um, but the idea of, a, of a, the office of a prophet was someone who generally what they did was they called people, they called people back to God's word and back to obedience to God's word. That's what Isaiah was doing. That's what Ezekiel was doing. That's what, they were all looking at what God had said and said, return to him. Some of them were given visions of the future to explain to God's people what was happening. But most of them were saying, this is what God's word says, and they exhorted them to go back to it. So in that sense, the, the role of a prophet or the office of someone who is prophetic, uh, you could say that some of what is done from a, a pulpit could be prophetic in nature, meaning calling people back to the word of God. But the idea that these two things, the people who saw Jesus and had the message from Jesus, and then the, the people who were originally given uh, inspiration to write the New Testament upon which the foundation of the church was built. Here's the reality of the deal. You and I are sitting here today as believers because those people did their job, because the Holy Spirit worked through them. They had the message of the gospel. They wrote it down. They made disciples who made disciples who gave the gospel. Who made, and onward and onward and onward until someone gave you the gospel. If you're not a believer, you should be. You should believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins because he loves you and wants to draw him to you in fellowship and restore his relationship to you. And if you've never accepted him as your savior, today is the day. If you don't think today is the day, come next week and you'll get another dose of gospel. So, if you make it that long. Anyway, sorry to be a little, uh, but that's the truth. So, um, apostles, prophets, Evangelist. So what does an evangelist do? An evangelist is a messenger of the good news. Uh, the Greek word breaks right down there. there, there is. They are someone who brings good news to someone else. The gospel means good news, and that is what an evangelist does. They bring the gospel to those who don't have it, plain and simple. That's what the McBrayers are doing. They are evangelists. They are bringing the gospel to those who don't have it so they can put their faith in Christ and they make disciples of them who make disciples. It's not that complicated. And then you have pastors and teachers. The word for pastors is the same word for shepherd, the guy that walks around and shepherds a flock. This is the way we use the same word today, pastor. Oh, when you think about pastor, you normally think about like 